I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Let's read the opening verses. Hear the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray once more. Our God and Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. May we be that blessed one that we just read about, who hears the words of this prophecy and who keeps your sayings, your words, and who is faithful. Help us, we ask, to rightly understand your word. Give us wisdom. Take away the chaff and leave us with the wheat of anything that we say here. In this hour, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back to this earth. It's going to be the same Jesus who was born and died and rose from the dead and who ascended to heaven. That same Jesus is coming back. Now, we confess this as Christians. This is, this is a core tenet of our faith, and yet... Sometimes I wonder if we spend the time thinking about it that we ought. We want to spend this hour thinking and and looking at the return of Christ. Now, it's sadly the case in my observation and the observation of others that many professing Christians have become indifferent to the return of Christ. It's it's as though he, he could come or he could not come and it would make little difference to them. Many have developed an indifferentism to the return of Christ, to the coming of Christ. And what's even worse in some ways is that there's a movement afoot in in these days in conservative circles towards a a concept called hyperpreterism, which is a belief that refuses to readily confess the bodily return of Christ. And this is such a growing concern that it's actually a group of evangelicals who have put together a website called hyperpreterism.com in which they affirm evangelical eschatological orthodoxy. And you can sign your name to that statement as I did yesterday. Now, there's room within the body of Christ to have disagreements about the exact order of events that transpire when Christ returns bodily. But what every single one of those groups has in common is the confession that Christ does indeed return Here's what the Apostle Paul had to say to Timothy about some of the first hyperpreterists in his day. He says this, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, 
and overthrow the faith of some. It's very dangerous. It's very serious to stray from the faith. When you stray from the confession of Christ's return and of the resurrection, you are, in a sense, overthrowing the faith. It's very serious. And there's a danger that we get so caught up in the controversy that we lose sight of the eminence and the veracity and the majesty of the return of Christ, of his appearance. And so today, again, we want to think biblically about what the scriptures do affirm about the parousia or the second coming. The word parousia is used sometimes in the Greek to describe the appearance or the coming of Christ. We're more familiar with the Latin version of that, adventus, from which we get the word advent. And there's the second advent of which we are speaking at this hour. Now, I'll readily confess that I have become jaded by the fake prophecies that surround our city. You're always hearing our local prophets saying, this is going to happen, and Jesus is going to return, and, and these kinds of things. And Well, we don't have a monopoly on that here in Tulsa, but they still get a lot of credence and a lot of publicity. And my concern is that we allow ourselves, though, in the context of those kinds of false prophecies, to allow ourselves to be robbed of a serious contemplation of the second coming. There's a danger that we grow callous to it because every time we think about it or hear about it, we're hearing it in this embarrassingly bad, false context. And I think one way of thinking about this is this. If if someone just hears about the possibility of the return of Christ in their own generation and they can just scoff it to scorn, they've become susceptible and have perhaps overreacted to false prophets. Such a person is not thinking the way that the biblical writers thought and wrote about Christ's coming. And we'll look at that. We'll see what Peter says about it. I think, to the contrary, that Christ is glorified when every generation eagerly awaits, eagerly anticipates, and maybe to some extent expects the return of Christ. Now, in a moment, we're going to look at our text here in Revelation, and we're going to look at some principles that I think that we can derive from here, and we will look elsewhere at the return of Christ. But as we introduce this topic, I, I first of all want to go down a, a brief rabbit trail, if you'll indulge me. You know, it's one thing if I were to tell you that in our generation we should eagerly anticipate and await the return of Christ, that we might be near the end. But it would be interesting, and it would be an, an another thing entirely, if we saw men in the early New Testament church history that would agree with that assessment. Well, when we look with a historical inquiry in some of the early church fathers, we find that this is the case. In fact, nearly 2,000 years ago, godly men in the early church believed that Christ's second coming would be in the general vicinity of our generation. I'm not saying this was the universal belief of the early church, but there were there was a, many that believed these things, and their reasoning was straightforward enough. They believed that the, the Sabbath principle applied at a macro scale of human history. Now, you're familiar with the Sabbath commandment as given in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy servant nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, here's the thing. When God gave that Sabbath principle to Israel and was really a recapitulation of the concept that predates Mount Sinai, it was given in the Garden of Eden. The Sabbath was made for not the Jew. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But when God gave this principle of one day of rest after six days, he didn't just apply it to a weekly level. He also applied it at the yearly level. You remember in Leviticus, he says this in chapter 25, In the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for Yahweh. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. And we see that seventh principle also applied in multiples because when you get to the year of Jubilee, well, that occurs seven, t seven times seven. It occurs a multiple after the 49th year. Then you have the year of Jubilee. So what the patristics essentially said was this. They said, some of them, again, I'm not saying this was the universal understanding, but they said, if a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, 
It would, it would almost be strange if the, this Sabbath principle that's buried deep into the rhythms of time did not also extend to the macro scale of creation. So in other words, they said that at the end of 6,000 years, there would be a thousand year of rest from the toil and the tossing tempest of this evil world. A thousand year Sabbath, if you will. I want to give you a couple of quotes from early church fathers that give a flavor of how they would express this belief. And the first one I'll give is from Hippolytus, who is a second and third century patristic. He was, as best we know, a disciple of Irenaeus. Irenaeus, as you're probably familiar, was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp, a disciple of John the Apostle. But Hippolytus wrote this in his scriptural commentaries, quote, Six thousand years must needs be accomplished in order that the Sabbath may come, the rest, the holy day on which God rested from all his works. For the Sabbath is the type and emblem of the future kingdom of the saints when they shall reign with Christ, when he comes from heaven, as John says in his apocalypse. For a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Since then, in six days, God made all things. It follows that 6,000 years must be fulfilled. Similarly, we see in the epistle of Barnabas, which is not written by the Barnabas that you're familiar with as being working with uh, the Apostle Paul. This is a Barnabas that comes later. It was, a, it was one of these epistles that was a subject of discussion of should it be included in canon, and they concluded, and we believe correctly, that it should not be. Nevertheless, it has some interesting things to know of, not things that we all necessarily agree with. But it just says this in the epistle of Barnabas in the what we would call the 15th chapter in the opening 15 verses. It says, Moreover, concerning the Sabbath likewise, it is written in the ten words, which is how they would talk of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. It is written in the ten words in which he spoke to Moses face to face on Mount Sinai, and you shall hallow the Sabbath of the Lord with pure hands and with a pure heart. And in another place he says, If my sons observe the Sabbath, then I will bestow my mercy upon them. And of Sabbath he speaks in the beginning of the creation, And God made the works of his hands in six days, and he ended on the seventh day and rested on it, and he hallowed it. Give heed, children, what this means. He ended in six days. He means this, that in 6,000 years the Lord shall bring all things to an end. For the day with him signifies a 1,000 years, and this he himself bears me witness, saying, Behold, a day of the Lord shall be as a 1,000 years. Therefore, children, in six days, that is 6,000 years, everything shall come to an end. And he rested on the seventh day. This he means when his son shall come and shall abolish the time of the lawless one. It's referring to the man of lawlessness, of Thessalonians. And shall judge the ungodly and shall change the sun and the moon and the stars. Then shall he truly rest on the seventh day. Well, that's it from the Episcopal of Barnabas. Well, if you pay ter- careful attention to the genealogies in Scripture, you know how, how old each father is, to the year at least. You know how old each father is when he has his firstborn son. And the Bible is not a book of mythology. You know, many postmodernists kind of treat it like that. It's not a big book of mythology. These chronologies and these genealogies that were given in Genesis and in the Chronicles and elsewhere, they, they're trustworthy accounts. These are, these are things that happened exactly the way that the Bible said that they happened. And these records that God has given are for our benefit and instruction. You know, when Paul is instructing to avoid endless genealogies that are not profitable, he's talking about extra-biblical sources. We know exactly what he's talking about there. And he's not talking about the Torah. He's not talking about biblical genealogies here. He's talking about theories about the Nephilim and stuff. It's an interesting discussion, but we won't go into that here. The point is, what we have given is for our benefit and for our instruction. We want to be careful and use it rightly, but we don't want to ignore it either out of fear of what it might say. And so if we put together a a timeline here of those genealogies of the age, we can come to a decent approximation of the age of the earth. And contrary to the unproven theories of God-hating evolutionists, it's the case I believe that the earth is, is shy of 6,000 years by a, by a margin, a small margin. And there's no reason to get more specific than that because if we could, that would miss the point. Um, Christ comes as a thief in the night when we do not expect, and we are always to be watchful, always vigilant in that regard throughout all our life. We, we cannot know the day or the hour of his coming. And I'm not suggesting we attempt to ascertain that. Our local prophets that do that face plant, it's an embarrassment and it's unbiblical. But I'm just sharing with you how some of those early patristics viewed our generation and adjacent generations. Now, as you can obviously tell here, there's a, a classical, historical, uh, premillennial eschatology assumed here on the part of these eschatological or on the part of these patristic writings. 
And it's the case that many of the early church fathers were premillennial. And their writings are not canon. They're not infallible. They're not theonustos. This was their opinion. But it is an opinion, I think, that's worth being aware of. Well, as we exit out of this rabbit trail, I'll, I'll leave you with the words of Paul that he gave to the Thessalonians. He, he says, prove all things. Hold fast to what is good. And I think that when we are dealing with things outside of Scripture, it's important that we, we do that. We test all things. We prove all things. And then what is left that is good, we hold fast to. Well, we'll leave that rabbit trail for now, but here's the point. Jesus is returning at some point, and it might be sooner than some people think. And so I asked the question this afternoon, have you thought about that? Are, are you ready for Christ to come back as a thief in the night? You know, we joke about the misuse of that, but that's a scriptural concept. He is coming back, and he will catch many professing Christians off guard. We want to look briefly at the text here in Revelation, and, and we'll exegete it some, and then we'll make some principles that we can back up from Scripture concerning Christ's coming, principles that I believe that we must hold to. Let's read the seventh verse again of Revelation chapter 1. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Now, from the outset of looking at this verse, I will say that there is some disagreement among Orthodox Christians, non-hyperpreterist Christians, about what this event is describing. If you take an early authorship to the book of Revelation, if you take its authorship to have occurred before AD 70, then this can be speaking of God's judgment on Israel. Primarily, his judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70 when the general Titus was dispatched and he begins the siege, I believe, in 69 AD and finally breaks up the city in AD 70. Now, you're not a hyper-preterist. You're not a, you're not a heretic if you believe that. There's room for that. You can affirm the bodily return of Christ even if you don't think that that's what this text is primarily talking about. It's a, it's a minority position, but there is a case to be made for it. That being said, most scholarship dates Revelation around 95 A.D. based on both what they see as internal and external evidence, and that would preclude this position. Interestingly enough, for what it's worth, one reason for this later dating is because of the fact that Irenaeus in his Against Heresies states that the vision occurred near the end of the reign of Domitian, which would put it at that later period. Well, there's room to disagree about this, and if Revelation 1-7 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, I still think that we can all agree at a minimum that that destruction of Jerusalem is a microcosm. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbolic foreshadowing of that great day of judgment. I don't think that the great day of judgment is going to be less impressive than the destruction of AD 70. And certainly the commentators that I read, including the 13 nonconformist ministers who finished Matthew Henry's biblical commentary took the view this is primarily talking about the bodily second coming of Christ. Also, I think it's worth noting here in Revelation 1 that the very next verse, Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's, he's the first and the last. In, in other words, to some extent, we, we, we're seeing in the book of Revelation, the, the, the full picture of human history, all the way to the finish. It, it doesn't just stop at the halfway point. I think that the hyperpreterists would wish that this said that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omicron. It's not what it says. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And so it's in that context that we want to look here at verse 7. And the very first thing we want to notice is there's no conjoining word here with the previous verse. There's no and. There's no, there's no kind of conjoining word here. It's, it's almost a standalone. In fact, some translators will put parentheses around this verse. It's, it's, a, it's an aside from the main argument. It's, it's calling your attention to itself. It's saying, behold, look, do not pass over this one thing. Behold, he cometh with clouds. Now, it's interesting because the coming of Christ in judgment is spoken of in the Olivet Discourses, similarly, with clouds. And it uses different prepositions, though, to describe what that coming with clouds looks like. For instance, in Mark 13, it says that he's coming in the clouds. 
In Matthew 26, it says that he's coming upon the clouds, epi. And in our text, it says he's coming with the clouds, meta. So you've got three different Greek prepositions, en, epi, and meta, to describe this, this same coming, the same, the same clouds. He's coming with the clouds, he's coming in the clouds, he's coming upon the clouds. Clouds. <laughs> so no doubt this is not just speaking of literal clouds, it's certainly speaking of that, but it may be speaking as a picture of the myriads of angels that accompany him as well, the host of heaven. You recall that in the book of Jude, Enoch was prophesying of the Lord coming, it says, with his holy ones. That's what's in the Greek there, hagios. The Lord comes with his holy ones. Jesus affirms this when he says that he will come, says in Mark's gospel, in chapter 8, that he's going to come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so I say that when it speaks of him coming in judgment with clouds, it can include angels. It's a metaphor. Well, the opening part of this verse uses very similar language to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, your Bible might have either as a margin a reference to Daniel or it might even have it in small caps to show it's a quotation from the book of Daniel. He's coming with the clouds. We do want to be careful about making assumptions here about whether this is describing the exact same thing as what Daniel's describing. You know, in the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is coming with the clouds up to the Ancient of Days, and what does he do? He receives dominion and glory. And yet here in Revelation, Jesus in the previous verses ascribed that glory and power. You see that he made us kings and priests unto God his Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He has the glory and the dominion, and now he's coming down with the clouds to judge the earth. And then we have a, a new development here in the prophecy. It says, every eye shall see him. As far as I can tell, this, this aspect of the global aspect of this is something that we don't find before this prophecy. This is not talking about a private rapture here. That doesn't work. And I would go far as to say that never do you see the Bible talking about some kind of a secret second coming. It's spoken of as suddenly, as a thief in the night. It's, it can come as a surprise. But the actual event itself is not some kind of a private event. And which is interesting because when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, it seems to be that it's only believers that see him. He doesn't appear to all of Jerusalem. He shows himself specifically to the saints. It was only they who saw him after his resurrection. But here, in his second return, it will be every eye that sees him. You're not going to be able to live in denial of it. You're not going to be able to bribe guards to have a fake story and move on. There will be no denying this. He will come and every eye will see him, including those who are resurrected unto damnation. Your eyes will see him. There's a global aspect to what John's talking about here. When Jesus came to judge in AD 70 through Titus and his armies, not every eye did see him then. Yes, it was a cataclysmic event for the nation of Israel, but those beyond its pale were not privy to it. Not every eye saw Jesus. But every eye will see Jesus when he returns. And again, I would say that even a, a semi-preterist could look at this and agree that the second coming of Christ, every eye will see him. So there's a global aspect of what John's talking about here. And then what does it say? It says, and they who pierced him, they who pierced him will also see him. Now, who pierced Jesus? Well, in a sense, we all did, all who are in Christ. We were the ones who put him on that tree. It was my sins that put him there. Technically, though, the ones that did the actual piercing were the Roman soldiers. And they were guided by the centurion who made that confession of surely this is the Son of God. But those Roman soldiers who pierced Jesus, they'd be very old men by 8070, and it would not, they, they would not belong to the young army of soldiers that went in 8070. Who else pierced Jesus? It was really the Jews who pierced Jesus, wasn't it? They weren't, they weren't the soldiers actually putting the nails in his hands and his feet. But it was the Jews who crucified Jesus. That's what Peter tells them at Pentecost. He says, it was you who slew the Son of God. And who were the key players in this? Well, there was Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, in addition to Judas. 
You know, you, you have Pontius Pilate who delivers Jesus over to the Jews. But Jesus tells him, the one who's delivered me up to you is guilty of the greater sin. It's really Judas and these high priests. They're, they're top of the list in terms of those who pierced Jesus. And they were all undoubtedly dead before AD 70. But here's the thing. Judas Iscariot will see Jesus when he returns. He will be there. Now, lest we think it will only be the generation alive when, when Christ comes, this, this sets our thinking straight here. And this, this matches what Paul says in Thessalonians, doesn't it? They're worried that those who have fallen asleep are going to miss out on the return of the Lord. And he says, no, they're not. In fact, they're going to experience it before you do in terms of being caught up into heaven with Christ. And so those who witness the second coming, it's going to include all humans from all previous generations. And that's going to include all those who pierced our Lord. They will see him with their eyes when he returns. You know, someone says, I hope I'm alive when Jesus returns. You will be. You will be. Pontius Pilate will be alive. The Roman centurion in charge of the crucifixion will be alive. And so will you. And then it says, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Now this word that's translated kindreds here, it it could be translated tribes. It's often used in the New Testament. It's primarily used in the New Testament to be talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. It doesn't always mean that, though. In Revelation 5, verse 9, it's used clearly to describe all the tribes of the earth. Let's look at that briefly here. Revelation 5. Verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and thou and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This is that same word there that's translated kindred. Clearly in this text, it's referring to all the peoples of the earth, different people groups out of all the earth here. And so here it says, all the kindreds of the earth, back in our text. You know, we, we do not read that all the tribes of Israel wail because of him. It says all the kindreds, all the tribes of the earth that are wailing here in this judgment context because of him. Do not miss the global nature of this language here. And I would say that the, the wailing here is not a wailing of gospel repentance. This is the beginning of eternal gnashing of teeth. All of their sinful pleasures are cut short. This is, this is a bitter remorse because it's irreversible. The gospel opportunities are forever over and all are ushered into the eternal state. Now again, your Bible might reference Zechariah 12.10 here with this phrase that all the kindreds of the earth will wail because of him. But it's interesting because if you go to Zechariah, we won't take the time now, but in that context... The prophecy is mourning over him as one mourns for an only son. It's a mourning that clearly in the context does lead to gospel repentance. But here it is only the wailing of Christ's judgment. Jesus came to die, but now he comes to kill. And they wail because of him. And there's something else I don't want us to fail to see in this all kindreds of the earth phrase. These these kindreds or these, these tribes of the earth are distinct entities here. And I think that one thing we can safely derive from that is that Satan's attempt at a one-world government ultimately falls short. We're going to see that later on in the book. He attempts that. I think we're seeing a lot of that in our day, but it ultimately falls short. There's these different people groups with their different languages, their different customs, their different borders, and all of these things are still there when Christ returns. And then John says, even so, amen. Now I have to confess that these three words here have confused me for the longest time. I've, I've read them and not understood what they were saying. The way that we tend to use even so in contemporary English here in the United States is, is very different from how it's being used here. You know, we usually use it as a contrast. We might say something like, it's, it's raining, even so, we continue with our plans. And that's not what this text is saying. In other words, John's not saying, okay, despite the fact that the judgment on God's enemies is very severe, even so, come, 
Lord Jesus. That's how I've understood it. But in the Greek here, this even so, this nigh, it's an emphatic yes. And you could loosely translate it, this shall certainly come to pass. There's, there's no contrasting element to this word nigh. It's, it's nothing but an emphatic underscoring yes. And then meanwhile you have this amen of the following word, which is a transliteration from Hebrew, and it just simply means truly. So what you really have here in these last three words, even so amen, is you have a strong emphatic yes in the Greek, and then you have another strong emphatic yes in Hebrew. It's, it's like John is saying in a bilingual way, yes, yes. Certainly, truly. I think that John Gill's observation is helpful at this point. Christ's advent that John is speaking of in Revelation 1-7 is not an advent just for the Gentiles. And it's not an advent that's just for the Jews. It's for both. It's for all tribes, kindreds of the earth. You know, we didn't, we never have a hint in scripture that there is a coming of Christ just for the Gentile church. Or a coming of Christ just for the apostate Jewish nation. Christ is coming for both Jew and Gentile, and it's emphatic. Yes, yes. Certainly, truly. Well, that's a very brief exegesis of the text. Now, there's three things that we want to affirm about the return of Christ. And the first thing is something that we've already talked about, and that is that Christ will return bodily. Let's look at Acts chapter 1. This is not a didactic section of Scripture. It's historical narrative, but there's great truth here. In Acts chapter 1, Starting in verse 9, we're looking at Jesus' ascension into heaven. It says, When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So notice the language there. It's very important. It says that Jesus is going to return in the same way that he went up into heaven. In other words, we define how Jesus is going to return by how we define how he first came. We define, on the flip side of that, how he first came by how we define how he's going to return. Which brings this question to bear. What happens if you deny his bodily return. If you deny his bodily return, and if he's going to go up into heaven the same way as they saw him go into heaven, then he didn't bodily go into heaven. It wasn't a physical body that went into heaven. So so what happens if you do that? What happens if you deny his bodily return? And we see how those two things are tethered. Well, we get the answer to that, among other places, in Second John... Chapter 1, there's not really a chapter 2, but Second John, verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Do you understand how, how serious this is? If you don't deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh... He says, you're Antichrist. You know, everyone's wondering, who, who, what is Antichrist? Who is Antichrist? I had a friend the other day who asked ChatGPT who Antichrist was and didn't get a very good answer. Well, let me tell you who Antichrist is. Antichrist is anyone, according to John, the apostle, who denies Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, you might notice that there's different ways you can render this in translation. It's interesting because John, by inspiration, is using a present participle here. He uses a, a perfect participle in 1 John 4, 2 to say the same thing. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. So you've got a perfect participle there, but here in John, Second John 7, he's using a present participle. And so there's some discussion, some debate about, is he talking here about the first coming, or is he talking about the second coming? Well, either one is possible, 
But regardless, passages like Acts 1 that we just looked at make it clear that these two advents are inseparably related. We don't, we don't get to pick and choose which of Christ's advents that we confess. We must affirm them both equally. They rise and fall together. You're, you're more like Antichrist than you are the Spirit of Christ if you deny the bodily return of Christ. And like I said, sadly, there are some in, in what we thought were sound circles who are not willing to black and white just say, yes, he is coming back. And that's something that we want to affirm and lovingly call them to repentance. So when we affirm the fact that a body ascended into heaven and that that body is going to bodily descend back to earth, one of the things that we're also saying there is that there is a human being in the glory of heaven, the man Christ Jesus. He has a body as real as yours and mine albeit glorified, and he is coming back to earth in judgment and to get his people. And when he returns, we will see him. You and I will see him. He's coming to this earth, the same earth that we're standing and sitting on here. He's coming to this earth. Every resident of Broken Arrow will see him. And again, I ask the question, have we thought about that? Have you seriously contemplated Christ coming, perhaps sooner than later, and every resident of, of Rose District seeing him and wailing. Well, another key scriptural proof for this, bodily return of Christ, we want to look at 1 Corinthians 11. We could, this could easily turn into a very long series, and that is not our intent. So we're Skipping a stone across the pond a bit here, I confess. But look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 11. We read this during communion, verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. The Lord is coming. Speaking of this verse, Spurgeon's Catechism states that it, quote, plainly teaches us that our Lord Jesus Christ will come a second time, which is the joy and hope of all believers. The very early Nicene Creed of 325 A.D. affirms this as well. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I like how with such clarity the Belgic Confession says it as well. The Belgic Confession of 1559 says this, Quote, finally, we believe, according to the word of God, that when the time appointed by the Lord, which is unknown to all creatures, is come, and the number of the elect complete, that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven corporally and visibly as he ascended, you're getting that from Acts 1, with great glory and majesty to declare himself judge of the quick and the dead, burning this old world with fire and flame to cleanse it. So that's the first thing that we must confess about Christ's coming. He will return bodily. The second thing that I want to look at, based on Revelation 1-7 here, is that Christ will return in terrible splendor and majesty. Our text here says that all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. His return is going to be awe-inducing to all of Adam's race. And even for those who are in fellowship with God, they too will be overcome with the fearsome majesty of the glorious King. And in this respect, Christ's second advent will be different from his first coming, his first advent. Because he came meek and lowly in a humiliated state. But that will not be how he returns, brothers and sisters. He will be returning as the victorious King to bring judgment on his enemies. And it will be a fearful day when he returns. He will come in great splendor and majesty. I mean, if you want to know what this will be like, I would say read Isaiah 6. You remember how the Apostle John in John chapter 12 identifies Jesus as Yahweh, as the Yahweh of Isaiah 6. And you remember those seraphim. The seraphim are free from sin. And yet they have their wings that they cover their face with. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
whole earth is filled with his glory. In fact, as you go through Scripture, every encounter with God, apart from Christ's humiliated state, has a fearful obeisance as a common characteristic. For our God is a consuming fire. And think about this. At Christ's resurrection, when he appeared, you remember how he has to frequently comfort those that he sees with words of peace. And some might say, well, that's because he appeared suddenly. Yes, and that will be how he returns the second time as well. Just the mere sight of angels, non-deity, at the tomb caused fear to the women. And it says that they bowed their faces to the earth in Luke 24. How much more the exalted Christ. You remember in, in Luke 24, he also had to tell his disciples, Jesus had to tell them when he appears to them, he says, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? The reason I bring this up is sometimes you hear people talk about Christ's return in a very casual way. Like it's going to be their buddy coming to give them a visit or something. And they've not thought biblically about the coming of the Christ. Christ's coming will be an awe-inducing event for all involved. Now that being said, it will take on very different tones between the wheat and the tares. We certainly affirm that. I'm thinking about what John says in 1 John. Let's turn to 1 John 2, verse 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before his coming. You know, those who are ashamed of Jesus and his words, he will be ashamed of them. There will be some when he returns who are ashamed before him at his coming. And so John is warning them, and he's saying, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Some will be ashamed. So Christ, first, will return bodily. Secondly, he will return in terrible splendor and majesty. And then thirdly, Christ will return theologically recognizable in orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now, that's a kind of a mouthful. <laughs> I'll say it again. Christ will return theologically recognizable in orthodoxy and orthopraxy. That last word, if it's new to you, it just means the living out of the belief, how we, how we live, the practice of our confession. Notice something about our text in Revelation 1.7. It says, They also which pierced him, The Jesus who's returning is a pierced Jesus. He's the pierced paschal sacrifice coming in glory. There's a continuity between the Jesus who first came and died and the Jesus who comes again. In other words, there's not going to be a few doctrinal hiccups with the Jesus who returns. When Jesus comes, he's not going to come with with doctrinal compromise. Sin's not going to get redefined. Salvation will not get redefined. Now, Why would I mention this? Well, there's a danger that we get caught up in the hype of a powerful angelic majesty who has, to our eye, the power and glory of Jesus, but who has doctrine that is a clever departure. I think that there's a good chance that there will be some demon or some DNA-modified human or perhaps a human-angelic hybrid who will proxy as Jesus before the return, and play both sides of the aisle. The devil knows better than the hyper-preterists that Jesus is returning, and he's eager to get out ahead of that. I think Scripture warns us about that. And he, he wants to beat Jesus to his own game. He wants to be first to market. And I believe God will let him. Some will fall away and be deceived. Scripture warns us about that. And the danger and the temptation for many will be to think, Okay, now that Jesus is here, he can correct our wrong thinking. I mean, we have the teacher right before us, right? We misunderstood. Many will be tempted to make this Jesus the standard and interpret the Bible in light of him. And those who don't go along with that will be accused of being like the scribes and the Pharisees who mistook the Jesus in front of them. And I say this, don't take the bait. Do you remember what John the Baptist asked of Jesus in Matthew 11. He calls for Jesus and he says, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? You know, remember, he's in prison 
Jesus is doing these mighty works. And there's discussion of did he send those messengers for the benefit of his own disciples or was he himself actually in the moment of confusion and sadness and, and being in prison having his own doubts? Well, either way, he dispatches these messengers and he comes, sends them to Jesus and says, are you the one that should come or are we looking for someone else? And you remember how Paul describes the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says that his coming is going to be after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now, regardless of who you think the son of perdition was or is or one day will be, the point is this. There's a, there's a principle that we can derive from the text regardless of that. And that is this, that Satan has the ability to transform himself into an angel of light, as it says elsewhere, and bestow a false messiah with all, all these powerful signs and lying wonders. You say, could, could the powers of darkness do that? Paul's saying they can. You bet they can. Jesus warns about this as well in, in his day in Matthew 24. There shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall so show great signs and wonders inasmuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, I do believe that there is a large fulfillment of that that did happen in AD 70 and before that. There were people who called themselves messiahs and led people out of the city and they all got killed and it was a mess. So I believe there was a partial fulfillment of that. But I think that every time we have a prophecy about that, there's also a vibration of a future fulfillment. Does this give you concerns, chills maybe? Maybe it should. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is why we need to be people of the book. This is why we need to prove all things and hold fast to what is good. Test all things. I'll put it this way. Know who the Jesus is that you're expecting. Who are you expecting? Know who the Jesus is that you are expecting. Our eschatology needs to budget for a false messiah who deceives many professing Christians. Sadly, as I think about a city like Tulsa, as a city, we are ripe for many professing Christians to be deceived. I mean, when, when a demon-possessed man like Kenneth Copeland can masquerade as a servant of Christ and get hearty approval, you know that our city's spiritual discernment is utterly lacking. It, it, it frightens me to think about how many will be deceived. People that you thought were your friends, or at least co-belligerents with, will think that you're some kind of antichrist and the whole thing's backwards. It's they who are deceived. And so if, if, if you haven't spent any time thinking and preparing for this, now may be the time to do so. I personally think that between now and Agenda 2030, year zero for all of the globalists, they hate the fact that we have a calendar that harks back to the year of Christ. They want to reset everything. And they are hell-bent on doing that by 2030. And they want to change every single aspect of society. They want to tr change where you live, how you travel, what you eat, how you spend money, what you spend money on. And they talk about it openly. This isn't conjecture. We have their receipts. 2030. That's their eschaton. They're immunitizing their eschaton. And I think between now and then, we're in for a very, very turbulent ride. Do not be deceived. As John the Baptist, be willing to ask, are you he that should come or look me for another? And I know a lot of people have an eschatology. They think, well, it's going to be so obvious when Jesus comes back. He's going to come back and it's going to happen immediately and we're going to go to the judgment. We don't have to worry about it. Yes. That would be a, a amillennial perspective. But what if someone comes with signs and powers and great wonders and calls himself Messiah and the timeline is taking a little longer than you thought and he's playing both sides of the aisles and there's doctrinal confusion? And 99% of professing Christians, or 90%, are going along with it. In other words, there's not going to be any head-scratching, no if iffiness about the true Christ. But about the Antichrist, yes. And it might not be as blatantly overt as, as we might think, because there's a deception aspect to it. So those are the three things from our text that we can and must hold to. One, Christ will return bodily. Two, Christ will return in terrible splendor and majesty. Three, 
Christ will return theologically recognizable in orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Well, as we conclude here, let us think upon the return of Christ. What does Peter say? He says, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And what is his impetus right before that? He says, what sort of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's our calling, brothers and sisters. That's what we are called to be at this time as we look for and hasten unto the coming of the day of God. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, in these days of violence that fills the earth, as in the days of Noah, it is an encouragement. It should be an encouragement to all of God's people to think upon the return of Christ, the just judge of the earth doing right and vindicating his people. Do not be indifferent to Christ's return. As you begin your day, begin it conscientious that you're doing so because of the return of Christ. That that is your only hope and consolation, that Christ is coming in the flesh. You know, Paul says, if, if in this life only we have hope, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the return of Christ, the vindication and the gathering of his people, we don't have a gospel. And if you're an unbeliever today as we close, consider this. There's a man coming in the clouds with his holy angels. A God-man. And he bears five bleeding wounds. He's pierced. And all the tribes of the earth will wail because of him. And you will see him with your eyes. But he was wounded for your transgressions. What did we see from John's gospel this morning? That if you live and believe in him, you will no never die. So confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. What, is, what does John say elsewhere? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Do you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Look to him and be saved, all the ends of the earth. The day of the Lord is at hand. Yes. Amen.